Want to create memories with your family? Do you have a desire to bring your family closer together? Are vacations lacking that special something you want your family to have? Tropic of Candy Corn is your resource for smarter, sweeter family travel. Learn from other families, be inspired, and encourage others with your weekend getaway and vacation ideas. Tropic of Candy Corn. This isn't a travel sales site. It's something new and different. A community to help bring your family closer through travel. Join us today at www.tropicofcandycorn.com. It's free and it's fun. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. In a moment, we'll go to our interview with Brian Hauglitz on the Book of Abraham. What a fascinating interview this is. Before we get to that, I just want to make a plea for listeners to the podcast to support the program. If you want podcast episodes like this to continue way into the future, helping you to understand the nuance and complexity of Mormonism, please please consider becoming a premium subscriber today by going to mormondiscussionpodcast.org and becoming a premium subscriber. By doing so, you get to listen to premium episodes early. If you donate at the $100 level, you'll also get a free t-shirt. Each of the levels of sponsorship come with various uh, perks and benefits to them, but all premium subscribers get to listen to episodes before the general public, usually months in advance. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year, but again, if you have the ability and you love the podcast, you love the program, you're enjoying the interviews that are going on, the discussions that we have, please consider uh, becoming a subscriber at a higher amount. You can even just do a one-time donation uh, by clicking the donate button on that website as well. Thank you for listening. God bless you. May the Lord warm your shoulders, and I hope you enjoy today's episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast with Book of Abraham scholar Brian Hauglid. Brian Hauglid, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Doing very well, Bill. Thank you. Good. Glad to have you on. Uh, Brian, I'll give you a, a moment here to introduce yourself, but I want to set up this uh, this podcast interview. Today we're going to talk with Brian Hauglid about the Book of Abraham, and, and my listeners are going to be well aware that this is a very uh, complex issue. It's got just a lot of nuance to it. And uh, and I'm glad to have Brian on today just because of your view, Brian, that you you seem to handle the nuance well, and, and I hope that that will feed into the things that we discuss. I also am hopeful that as we go through this, uh, this discussion, that if you feel like besides maybe a view that you hold, if it'd be of worth to share a view that you, you know, that you understand one of your colleagues or one of the uh, other apologists in the church to hold, uh, feel free to kind of give us a, a different point of view as well. But but with that, uh, would you mind just getting us started by sharing a little bit about who you are? Sure. I am a convert to the church, actually. Joined when I was 21. I uh, grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, went on a mission to California and uh, met my wife at BYU, and we were married at Salt Lake Temple, and uh, been a bishop a couple of times and a bunch of high councils, and so I've had lots of opportunities to serve in the church. And uh, as far as professionally, I am uh, my Ph.D. work was in Arabic and Islamic studies, working mostly with uh, old medieval texts. So I have a lot of text experience. And so I've been... Uh, in, I've been in CES as a seminary institute teacher. I've been at BYU since 98. I'm down at the Maxwell Institute right now for the last couple of years as the director of the Willis Center. And, uh, and so I'm, I don't know what else you need to know. I think, I think that's about it. So I've worked a lot with the Book of Abraham, you, you know, and since about 2006, I think, uh, got a couple of books out, uh, that I've worked on with others on, on the Book of Abraham. Uh, one is the, uh, Traditions About the Early Life of Abraham. And, uh, we, there's another one called Astronomy, Papyrus, and Covenant. And then there's my most recent one, which is a textual history of the Book of Abraham. And so those are, and then I've, I've published here and there some other articles and such. So but th- is that good enough, Bill? Yeah, that sounds great. Maybe just give us uh, a little bit of background. You're talking about some of these books that you've written in regards to the book of Abraham, but maybe just share a little bit with us about how you first got into studying the book of Abraham in the sense that you became, you know, either a somebody others were looking to for, for an understanding of this issue, but also maybe more so just what got to you personally interested in it to the point where you began to, to kind of be in the public eye talking about it. Sure. 
my my first introduction to the book of Abraham really was mostly just academic. Uh, I was a uh, institute teacher at at University of Utah, and I was working with some Islamic materials that actually related to Abraham, just as just Islamic stories about Abraham. In fact, that's what I did my PhD work on. And so I, I was in contact with uh, some people up at farms. This is back in what mid 90s, and so they asked me if I'd be willing to do some work on on Abraham traditions that are Islamic and in Arabic, of course, most of them. And I said, yeah, that'd be, that'd be very interesting to do. And so at, or initially it was all about academics for me. And I guess it has been pretty much throughout. So there were really no questions at the very beginning in the, in the 90s. It wasn't until maybe the mid-2000s where I kind of got back into it again, but just in a little bit different way uh, with looking at the manuscripts themselves, the the Abraham manuscripts, currently the Egyptian papers, maybe you've heard of those. And I began my work with those. And then I did some some uh, uh, presentation. I did a presentation, I think it was in 2006 at the FAIR conference. And that's when I started learning about, gosh, people are really kind of excited about this in different ways. <laughs> I mean, some people are really, right. really interesting. And some people are just not not at all happy about the book of Abraham. So again, up to that point, it was mostly all academic for me. I just was looking at these documents and coming up with different things from an academic point of view. So I went to FAIR and presented some of those ideas. And then I just had this, this I guess, this blowback in a sense that was very interesting to me. I was like, oh, okay, so they can't, it can't be this, it can't be that because Joseph Smith was a fraud? Oh, okay. <laughs> I hadn't really looked at it from, from those perspectives up to that point. But now since 2006, uh, I have done a lot more work uh, taking into consideration what these alternate points of view have been along the way, not just from Mormon apologists, but from non-Mormon uh, and from ex-Mormon and w whether they're, they're people that are, that, that are the chip on their shoulder people or they're the people that are really trying to figure things out, you know, from, you know, looking at all this different information. And so that's what I've been doing probably for the last seven or eight years now is, is trying to understand as much as I can these different perspectives. I'm still an academic at heart, Bill, so <laughs> I can't help that because that's what I'm trained to be as a scholar and an academic. So it's very interesting to me. But yes, I have had those who have questions who, who are going through maybe a faith transition or a faith crisis. And I've talked to people quite a bit about, you know, the, the book of Abraham based on my experience with the book of Abraham uh, and all these issues that are related to it, especially, the, you know, of course, it's the origins of the book of Abraham, the papyri and the manuscripts and, the, you know, all these things about translation and the facsimiles and all, the, all of that stuff. Uh, as you said, it's very complicated. But that, that's kind of been my journey, so to speak, is up to this point uh, is I'm, I'm, I guess I'm an academic, but now I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a uh, I'm there if people want to talk about the book of Abraham. So that's why I get into these kind of podcasts <laughs> uh, where I can talk about it and maybe provide a little bit more information that that not in terms of settling questions, so, so, so to speak, but in terms of ex exploration and thinking through, you know, well, what does this mean? If we take this stand, what does that mean? Uh, and, and I like to think through those kinds of things rather than just say, here's the answer, 100% definitive. Here we go. That's it. It's over. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I, I think being able to kind of swim in this messiness uh, is going to be helpful to, to the listeners. What I want to do today is I essentially want to talk about maybe six or seven major points of, of difficulty that people have with the whole thing uh, in this issue with the book of Abraham. But I want to start off just by presenting the story and I want to present it in the way that, that I was taught uh, this issue. So I joined the church. I'm 36 years old. I joined the church as an older teenager uh, in high school. And when I took the missionary discussions and began reading a little bit online, I, uh, I come across 
you know, essentially how we got the book of Abraham. And I'll even read here from the recent uh, gospel topics essay that the church did on it, where they have a heading uh, section here called the origin of the book of Abraham. And, uh, and I, obviously I'm not reading this for you, Brian, but for the listeners, the, uh, the powerful truths found in the book of Abraham emerged from a set of unique historical events. In the summer of 1835, an entrepreneur named Michael Chandler arrived at church headquarters in Kirtland, Ohio with four mummies and multiple scrolls of papyrus. Chandler found a ready audience due partly to the exploits of the French Emperor Napoleon, the antiquities unearthed in the catacombs of Egypt, had created a fascination across the Western world. Chandler capitalized on this interest by touring with ancient Egyptian artifacts and charging visitors a fee to see them. By the time the collection arrived in Kirtland, all but four mummies and several papyrus scrolls had already been sold. A group of Latter-day Saints in Kirtland purchased the remaining artifacts for the church. After Joseph Smith examined the papyri and commenced the translation of some of the characters of or, or uh, sorry characters or hieroglyphics it's his um, his history recounts much to our joy we found that one of the scrolls contained the writings of Abraham and i think all of us as members if we're even just digging a little bit we get this story and i remember you know when i'm investigating the church and shortly thereafter joining i kind of have this really naive understanding that that joseph uh, being a prophet, seer, and revelator, sees something in these scrolls that catches his eye. He determines that these are the writings of Abraham. He commences to begin a, a translation of this uh, papyrus. And then what comes out of that translation is the book of Abraham. And it seems really, you know, simple, cut and dry when we first learn this and everything fits and it all makes sense. But as we begin to delve into this further, we realize a couple of things happened. One is that the the papyrus, while the majority of it seems to have burned up in the Chicago fire, some of it didn't. It came into our possession in the 1960s and it didn't take long for Egyptologists to begin looking at this papyrus and realize very quickly that this papyrus when we translate the Egyptian into English, essentially has nothing to do whatsoever with Abraham or with the book of Abraham that the church has as scripture. And all of a sudden, this kind of knocks out this foundation, and all of a sudden, the building kind of comes crashing down. And for many people, this issue, essentially, as you talked earlier, sends them spiraling into a faith crisis or a or a really difficult faith transition. Um, maybe just your thoughts on kind of this initial setup of the story and, and maybe even your feedback on the recent essay being released by the church and your thoughts on it. Well, the, I guess I can say that, that I was a consultant for the church essay uh, along with about five or six other people, and they kept us pretty close to the vest as far as, you know, don't talk too much about, you know, what our meetings were like, those kinds of things. And we did have several meetings and, and uh, tried to talk through some issues. And uh, and so when you look at the essay, it, it does kind of come across as a as a committee work, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, you've got a lot of different ideas in there uh, that are trying to be expressed. Right. Um, and it is trying to make sense of what used to be a very simple story before the before the 1960s. Actually, maybe not as simple as we might think, though, because the facsimiles were an issue way before 1967, uh, going back to uh, Deveria back in the 19th century. And so, I mean, we've got, you know, evidence of some, some back and forth between church apologists and Egyptologists going back well before the 1960s. But yes, in 1960s, when the papyri was uh, returned back to the church uh, and Egyptologists were able to look at it, it made that very simple story very complicated. And well, at least it does for those of us who want to stay in the church. How's that? Uh, for some people, it was very simple. Right. It was, look, this is not the book of Abraham. Therefore, Joe Smith's a fraud. He didn't translate this. I'm out of here. And, and a lot of people have taken that road. I'm more nuanced, as you know, and so I don't think about it quite that way. Uh, I think that there's interesting things you can learn about Joseph Smith as a translator by looking at what's going on with the papyri and with the 19th century, of course, Joseph Smith's time period, and what's going on with Joseph Smith as he sees himself as a, a revelator and a prophet. And and I look at that very differently in terms of, you know, I guess I, I, I look at it, it's it's quite obvious to me that that Joseph Smith thought that the papyri 
had the book of Abraham on it. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, we can read that in the book of Abraham, just at the, the very title of the book of Abraham, which dates to the 19th century, uh, concurrent with Joseph Smith. And, and we know that from uh, other historical accounts that people around him thought it was on there. Joseph Smith thought it was on there. And so that's where that's the really difficult grappling point for us there. Uh, if it was on the papyri, how, how, why isn't it on there now? <laughs> why, you know, okay, so some have this, this idea that it's on the missing papyri. And others say, well, no, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be on the missing papyrus because we have this other papyrus here from the 60s that correlates to the uh, Kirtland Egyptian papers. I hope this isn't getting too complicated, Bill, but, but it's, uh, it's, it's a matter of if it's on the papyri, then that's going to have a set of assumptions. And if it's not on the papyri, then that's going to lead down a different path of assumptions. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does. And I, and I appreciate that. And I, I really do value this idea of just recognizing that we've got some issues. As you point out, I mean, you take the, the stance that at the very least, Joseph thought that what that papyri contained was the book of Abraham. And I, and I think that that's just a giant step right there, just to even say, hey, look, whether he's right or he's wrong, let's just acknowledge that in his own words, he's saying this is what he thinks is going on. Yes, absolutely. That's ex- I uh, I wonder if we can kind of jump into, I, I think there's been enough podcasts, enough articles written that kind of set up the story. I wanted to just give kind of a brief intro, but I wanted to use our time to really hit at some of these issues. And so I've, I've got six questions that I kind of sent you to think about. And I wonder if we could just start off here with number one. Uh, it says here, the book of Abraham Papyrus was written 2,000 years after Abraham in spite of us calling it the writings of Abraham. Now that's, that's, if I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that's Joseph Smith's own words, and that's also the, uh, the heading, uh, to the book of Abraham prior to it being, uh, it being changed over the, I think the last year and a half or so, uh, that heading became something different. That's the heading to the, that's the intro to the book, in the book of, uh, or the Pearl of Great Price. The heading to the book of Abraham itself has not been changed. Gotcha. But there's this acknowledgement that it be, at one time we said, hey, these are the writings of Abraham, and now we've kind of just shifted that a little bit, realizing there's a little more nuance there. Um, your thoughts on Joseph claiming these are the writings of Abraham, when in reality the actual writing itself uh, on the papyrus probably is far, far, far removed from Abraham in time? Well, it is, it's far removed from Abraham in time. And it's also far removed from Abraham in terms of content, at least with content we have now with with the uh, papyri. Uh, so if if we assume that that the Abraham that the book of Abraham was on the papyri, whether it be the missing papyri or not, then then we have to ask ourselves: Well, this this material, the the material that we have right now, dates to about you know I'm just giving a rough estimate here about 150 B.C. And it's the, and the material that we have right now is just common funerary documents, Book of Breathings, Book of the Dead, those kinds of things. And they're attributed to actual people uh, that they were buried with. And now if the papyri held the Book of Abraham, let's just assume that for a moment, hypothetically, then that would mean that, that the, it would have had to have been copied over and over again from the time of Abraham up until about 150 B.C., that, and, and so, and that's that's, that's textual transmission that, that we have happening with any text. Uh, I mean, the Bible that we read today is just a copy. It's just a copy of a copy of a copy going way back. We don't actually even have any original autograph copies of anything in the New Testament. We know that, um, and so so that's not really. That's if we go down that road that the Book of Abraham was on the papyri. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and I would even add. I think it's not much of a stretch. You know, if I hold my paperback copy of the Book of Mormon up and say this was written by Nephi and abridged by Mormon and Moroni, I think on some level, even if we take the stance that the Book of Abraham is in the papyri or at least some way connected directly to it, I think it's fair in a sense to hold up other sets of scriptures and say, hey, you know, this section of the New Testament was written by Paul, even though what we have, as you're pointing out, is a copy, multiple times copied, you know, over. That's right. That's exactly right. That's where I would go with that point. 
Good. And I, and I appreciate that. Um, and I, and I do like, again, we're, I mean, I know I'm stuttering and stammering and most of my podcasts run really smoothly. This issue is just a difficult one for me to make sure I try to, to cover the right way. So we're acknowledging that perhaps more than likely the book of Abraham is not necessarily in the papyri, but that, but that is a possible connection to make, right? There are some out there who say that, that perhaps the papyri that we don't have, which would maybe even be a large chunk of it, uh, contained in some way connected to the book of Abraham? Yes. Uh, John Gee has estimated that we only have about 15, 13 to 15%, I think, of the papyri that was in the possession of Joseph Smith. And uh, he argues that, you know, if you're missing 85%, and if the, if the contemporary witnesses are saying that the book of Abraham was on the long roll, then the chances of, of it being on the missing papyri, it, it increases. And, and so, of course, it's, it's, you know, the, the downside to that is it's extremely difficult to prove a negative, to prove something that you don't have, uh, because you don't have it. And it makes it very difficult I mean, we, we, if we just had that missing 85%, we could just examine it and see that the book of Abraham was on there, then all would be good. But, you know, if what we have today uh, in terms of papyri is any indication of what Joseph Smith had uh, in the other 80 or 85%, then, of course, it wouldn't have been on there. Now, here's where it gets really sticky. The papyri that we do have has already been, it was correlated to the papyri, the papyri was correlated to the manuscripts, the 1835 manuscripts, and that problematizes things because you, you get off of uh, one of the fragments, there were, I think, uh, 10 or 11 fragments that we have from the 60s, and off of fragment number 11, there's about three lines there where each character on those three lines is taken off sequentially and placed on the manuscript that has Abraham chapters 1 through about 2, verse 18. And so you get a character in the margin, then you get some English text, then you get another character in the margin, then you get some more English text. And it goes through about a dozen or so characters, and there's three manuscripts that do that. And one manuscript, it's not all the same person. One manuscript is, is W. W. Phelps. Another manuscript is, is Warren Parrish. Another manuscript is, is uh, um, Frederick G. Williams. And so you get these, it's covering the same amount of text, though, in the book of Abraham. Abraham 1 through 218 and using the exact same characters. So that problematizes the missing papyrus theory, in my mind anyway, because if they're connecting it to that piece of papyri, then who's to say that that it's on this this missing stuff, uh, this missing role, so to speak? Uh, and it gets even more interesting when you put in the facsimile number one, and you go to Abraham chapter one, verse twelve, I think it is, where he says, "I refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record." And the facsimile number one was connected to fragment number 11 from where those characters were taken off of. And so it ac is actually at, you know, just right after that, that facsimile, that vignette, that picture. And so that, that argues, to me anyway, that argues against a missing papyrus theory. Right. No, I appreciate that. I, I want to follow this up kind of just hinting at the same thing, which is what you're talking about, that we, if we're going to take the stance that the papyri, you know, the missing section makes up the book of Abraham, you're talking about the facsimiles kind of throwing a wrench into that. In some ways, if I'm not mistaken, the Kirtland Egyptian papers also make the lost scroll theory kind of a giant stretch uh, because you have Joseph or his scribes essentially matching up these kind of translations and characters. And it seems like this, the Kirtland Egyptian papers are directly correlated to some of the papyri that we do have, as, as I think you're pointing out, it, it seems problematic. And I want to go to the facsimiles for just a moment. It, we have Joseph. So Joseph's giving us the book of Abraham. And in connection with this book of Abraham, it's not like the facsimiles are really a completely separate entity. They're, in a sense, a huge part of his translation of the book of Abraham. And he's given us a translation of what the different uh, characters in these facsimiles stand for, uh, the canopic jars, uh, what, you know, Abraham on the altar. And yet when we compare these facsimiles with their use in other funerary documents, we end up almost with a complete 100% miss on what Joseph is saying these things stand for and what Egyptologists 
say these things mean in the terms in which they're being used in these funerary documents? How do we make sense of that? Yeah, that this is the these are problems that were were going on much before 1967. These these go back to the to the uh, 19th century where you get criticisms against the facsimiles uh, as people learned how to to read. Egyptian, they, they figured out that that Joseph Smith was actually doing a character-to-character translation in the facsimiles, which we try to argue against uh, in terms of his translation. We try to say, well, translation doesn't mean the same thing to Joseph Smith. He's just doing expansion or something like this. Uh, but in the facsimiles, it seems like he's saying, or he is saying, uh, this character up here says Pharaoh, or this character here says this, and especially in facsimile number three. And that really, you know, makes it a, a complex issue in terms of, you know, what what are these, what are we trying to do here? What what was Joseph Smith trying to do? Uh, was he trying to to come off as a as a bona fide Egyptologist translator type person, uh, or was he just uh, going through this material and adapting it to what he thought it should mean. Um, I mean, we're not sure exactly what's going on there. And those problems haven't gone away. Even, you know, the essay doesn't really hit on them, that hit on the uh, facsimiles that much, as you know. And it's it's not really an issue that our Mormon apologists have really dealt with. Our Mormon Egyptolo- Egyptologist apologists I'm talking about, they haven't really tackled the fact similes very well yet because they agree that that the translations themselves do not match up with Egyptology um, and so some will say some one I'll mention a lot of names here uh, but one apologist will say well Egyptology itself doesn't know what's really going on they, they don't they don't agree with each other what these things mean so how could how could they know whether or not Joseph Smith got it right or wrong and uh, you know I don't you know I don't know if that's really a great explanation or not uh, it doesn't really answer the question in terms of you know that that this this is a problem and I think we should acknowledge that we should acknowledge that yes the facsimiles have some translation issues uh, do we want to look at them as more of a midrash adaptation type thing would that would that be a better way to to try and make some sense out of what Joseph Smith is trying to do Does, is he just adapting them to the story of Abraham uh, and what's going on in his own mind? Is he thinking he's an Egyptologist in a sense, and he knows Egyptian, so he can translate these things? Or is he just trying to to, to create some sort of continuity uh, with these pictures into the story of Abraham, and he feels inspired to to adapt them into that story? And and those those are some of the the, the kinds of things you know I, I wonder about with the facsimiles. I never can come out and say to anybody that asks me about the facsimiles, if they say, look, Joseph Smith really messed up on these facsimiles or these these translations don't match up. And I just have to say, yeah, you're right. You're, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, this is a this is a huge challenge. Uh, and most of the time when I say that, the other person will say something like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting you to say that. I was expecting an answer, some sort of a, you know, why this happened or or what's, you know, to solve the problem. But the problem is still there and we have to acknowledge it. Yeah. And I do, you know, I, I see sometimes that in the church, kind of in this defense of the book of Abraham, we'll point out maybe one or two places where Joseph seems to kind of hit on something. Um, the, the crocodile god or the four canopic jars being the, the four different directions, uh, the four quarters of the earth. I, but isn't that really, I mean, at its root, doesn't that really kind of miss the point that those really aren't too like bullseye hits? They're, they're, I mean, you can kind of shade them that way, but in reality, he's getting so many things incorrect that it, it really isn't fair to, to hold those two up on a pedestal and say, look, here's what Joseph did. He nailed them. <laughs> yeah. In Rittner's most recent book, Robert Rittner, you, you might be aware of his work. Um, he, uh, he basically says that you're, you're talking about, um, uh, figure number six, in fact, similarly number two, where you have the four, the four directions there. And, you have, and, and this is the one that Rittner says is the only one that he got right in, in fact, only number two. And so everything else is, in his mind, wrong. And so do we want to focus in on that one 
right thing and say that you know that somehow that supports us as uh, you know that Joe Smith was inspired, or do we want to acknowledge that there's a lot of other problems with the fact somebody number two uh, that that's going to lead us down asking some other kinds of questions? Um, and I'm not saying you have to go down the the, the Joseph Smiths of fraud, I don't ever see him as, as somebody who is, is somebody that is, how do I say it, that is a premeditated liar, <laughs> you know, that's trying to deceive people or anything like that. I think he really thinks he knows this stuff, and he's trying to give us what is in his mind at the time, and you, we're just going to have to go with that, even though it doesn't match up with Egyptology today. Right. And, and I will, at the end of this uh this interview, Brian, I'll give you a chance to kind of, we'll end on some positive notes and talk about what you make, what you make of the book of Abraham and, and how you reconcile all of this and, and kind of what your, your final thoughts are, uh, dealing with the book of Abraham as scripture. And, and I realize that the first half of this interview is going to come off kind of really negative, but I, I just know there's a lot of people out there who struggle with the book of Abraham. In some ways, their testimony was lost on this issue and, 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 in many ways, they've never really been validated that the things they see and hear and think about in terms of this issue are real concerns. And so I just want to say a huge thank you that you're acknowledging some of these problems really are problems, or at least they're complex and they're, they're complicated at, at the very minimum. And that, that's why I'm doing it. I'm not trying to be a, you know, a sad jack on this, you know, just trying to be depressing about it. It's all about acknowledging. It's all about you know, that we've got to validate that what people are seeing out there is really there. Right, right. The I had one listener to the podcast. He he wrote in a question. He said, critics claim that the book of Abraham, and again, we're getting away from the papyri here for a moment, that the book of Abraham itself, the actual piece of scripture we've got, that it's full of bad uh, pre-20th century astronomy and other anachronisms, um, maybe speak for a moment of of if... If we've got maybe some of Joseph's milieu in, in the book of Abraham, or if that's even a fair critique to make, and, and if some of the ideas in the book of Abraham don't work from the kind of scientific standpoint. Yes, I, I, I know exactly what you're, what you're asking here. I see Joseph Smith as no different than the rest of us in terms of he was a man of his time. He lived in the early 19th century. And he had, you know, he had to be affected by what was going on around him. And to, to have, to me, what is somewhat of a naive view in terms of, let's say, uh, revelation that, let's use the Book of Mormon as an example, that the Book of Mormon just kind of drops from the sky, lands in Joseph Smith's lap, and there it is. That, you know, yet we have in Doctrine and Covenants where Joe Smith is supposed to study it out in his mind. He's supposed to pray about it. He's supposed to ask about it. Uh, and, and it looks to me like that revelation is not just a, an external event going on, but that it's very much an internal event that is both the intellect and the mind and the emotion and all of that kind of wrapped together. And so when I look at, at these anachronisms, because you do see some things in the Book of Abraham, for instance, the, uh, the astronomy in the Book of Abraham is, is geocentric. It's all based on the point of view from the earth, from where we are. And, and, uh, and there's been some apologists that have tried to argue that that's a good thing. And there's been some apologists that have tried to argue more for not a, a geocentric, but a heliocentric approach in the book of Abraham, which is harder to see, I think. Uh, be, but yet in Joseph's day, uh, what was it more? Was it more geocentric or was it more heliocentric? I think you'll find that, that probably uh, the geocentric uh, approach was was still pretty common thinking, um, although they knew about this, the Earth revolving around the Sun and these kinds of things. But still, it was a very geocentric viewpoint in terms of looking at things from where we are on this Earth. Uh, and so it wasn't wasn't uh, that out of the ordinary for Abraham chapter three to talk about geocentrism. Or even you know you've got Thomas Dick that talks about intelligences, and we get intelligences in chapter three of the book of Abraham as well. Is is it the question we need to ask ourselves is, is it okay for Joseph Smith to be uh, influenced by, by these kinds of things? Is it, does that somehow take away from his being a prophet? Or does it add to it? 
how is it working? Is it working together? Is it, is it still inspired? Is it still, do you see what I'm saying? Learn to ask questions about, about this. And you are. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to your listeners here. <laughs> so that's why you're having me on here. You're asking questions. So. Right, right. No, and I totally, I totally understand that. I mean, I, I think we deal with the same issue when we talk about the Book of Mormon and, and we find Joseph using phrases that are in the New Testament or we find Joseph using the King James Bible vernacular and it just kind of forces us to take a step back and say, okay, this isn't God whispering in Joseph's ear a word for word way of com, com, uh, communicating scripture, but rather that Joseph is being given ideas or concepts and then he's having to go back into his own rhetoric, his own vernacular, his own experience in culture and find ways to, to put those ideas into words. And I think when we see it that way, there's a lot more room for for Joseph's surroundings to show up in ways in the scriptures that he is revealing. Yes, you said it better than I said it. <laughs> That's the next question I wanted to ask, which is, and I don't really understand the question. This this came from another listener. Uh, why it seems that contents are similar to sources from Thomas Taylor, Thomas Dick, and extra-biblical apocrypha. I think we've kind of hit on that, but maybe just mention for a moment what what ideas are in the book of Abraham that, people like Thomas Taylor, Thomas Dick, and, and maybe other things that we find in, in the Apocrypha that we're also finding in the Book of Abraham? Well, you have to understand that there's a lot of ideas floating around in the early 19th century uh, from, from those kinds of uh, sources. And, and so it's not going to be unusual to see, you know, something of an Emanuel Swedenborg or something of a, of a Thomas Dick uh, showing up. It's not going to be unreasonable to see maybe something from Jewish Midrash, uh, coming out with Abraham, Abraham's life being, uh, threatened on an altar, uh, and finding actually Midrashic type things in the book of Abraham that, that correspond to extra biblical stories that Jews, Christians, even Muslims have floating around in their, their legends and stories. Um, and so to me that that's again it's 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 kind of going to the same the same issue that you just explained. These are ideas that are floating around these are things that are that are in the environment, and to see them showing up in the book of Abraham is shouldn't be all that surprising uh, and so I, I hope that kind of helps to answer a little bit of that question there's there's you know, you ask what other kinds of things. Most of my work was on on finding uh, extra biblical type things with the stories about the of Abraham, especially the early life of Abraham. Uh, and I did find lots of connection to Abraham. Uh, for instance, Terah in the in the Bible. Yeah, the Bible portrays Terah in a neutral way, except for in Joshua. There's there's one verse that talks about Terah being an idolater there. Uh, which maybe the early interpreters got that idea from, I don't know. But there's nothing in Genesis that's concurrent with Abraham's time period to suggest that Abraham was an idolater. But yet, you know, the, the extra-biblical literature, the Jewish stories, the Christian-Muslim are just filled with, with Terah as not only an idolater, but an actual manufacturer of idols. He had a, he had a business that he ran um, of idol making business, and so uh, and Tara comes off that way pretty clearly, I think, in the Book of Abraham. Gotcha. I I wanted to ask you this. I mean, we're talking about kind of this midrash stuff, the this apocryphal uh, works that we've got, and pointing to similarities they hold with the Book of Abraham. Is, are these things Joseph would have clearly been aware of, and therefore that's why it's a criticism, or or are these things Joseph would not have been aware of, and in some ways perhaps this even stands as an evidence that that he's hitting on some common theme that others are hitting on that he is completely unaware is has occurred. I, I think that if you look at Adam Clark's commentary, there's a few other ones, Simon Patrick commentaries, you're going to find extra biblical stories in there, Midrashic stories. Uh, they did find uh, a book of Jasher, I believe, that was in the early 1840s. And, and so 
it sounds like to me that these ideas were around at that time. Now, whether Joseph Smith actually read those things or not, of course, we can't put, put a book in his hand, perhaps. But that doesn't mean that he's not being maybe somewhat influenced by some of those ideas. And so, and to me, inspiration and the ideas of your day can work together. Just as you mentioned earlier, uh, he's going to try to understand the revelations that he got within the context of his day and then put it into words the best that he can. I, I want to kind of begin kind of heading, I guess, towards a wrap-up and sharing maybe kind of a culmination of why both theories have criticisms and what people see as the flaws in each, and then allow you maybe to share how you personally reconcile this issue and what you make of the Book of Abraham, and to kind of end us on a positive note that despite all the messiness, despite all the the complexities that are in this issue, that there's reason to hold on and to to see something divine going on here. In the in the missing papyrus theory, I've got four things that uh, that listeners pointed out as what they see are issues or things that critics are raising. Uh, it says the missing papyrus theory fails. Some apologists argue that we do not have the papyri from which the book of Abraham was translated. This argument falls short for the following reasons. The book of Abraham itself, Abraham 1, 12 through 14, refers to facsimile 1, which appears at the beginning of the breathing uh, permit or horror scroll, which we have. Furthermore, Abraham 1.12 states that facsimile 1 appears at the commencement of this record, which is consistent with the breathing permit of horror scroll being the source of the book of Abraham since facsimile 1 appears at the beginning of that scroll. You acknowledged that earlier in the, in the, uh, in the episode. Uh, the second one, all three of the 1835 manuscripts of the book of Abraham are made up of Egyptian characters in the left-hand margin, and a translation of them into the book of Abraham on the right. All of these Egyptian characters in the manuscripts are taken from the breathing permit of Hor in the order they appear on the papyrus, indicating that the breathing permit of Hor is the source of the book of Abraham. The breathing permit of Hor scroll has been translated, and there is no disagreement that it has nothing to do with with Joseph Smith's translation of the book of Abraham, but instead is a common Egyptian funerary text from the 1st or 2nd century B.C. We've kind of hit on that as well. The... uh, the third one is the breathing permit of horse scroll we have has a missing portion, but we know the book of Abraham could not have appeared there because it is 13 times too small to contain the book of Abraham by measuring the length of the scroll's windings. The length of the scroll has been established, and they, they point here to some links, which I'll, I'll include here in this episode where people can go and see that. And then finally, the missing papyrus theory fails to account for the incorrectly translated and incorrectly restored facsimiles. So those are the four reasons they give for the missing papyrus theory. But I, I think from your your voice and the words that you've used, you also personally disagree with the missing papyrus theory, correct? You are right about that, yes. When you when you hear it from Mormon apologists, Egyptology apologists, they skip the the what was it, number two, I think it was, talking about being tied into the eighteen thirty five manuscripts. They don't yep. they don't ever spend much time on that. They just say that, well, that's just W.W. Phelps doing his own thing, and they distanced that from Joseph Smith. And that goes back to Nibley, by the way. Nibley did the the way he explained the Kirtland Egyptian papers was that the scribes were the ones that were responsible for putting that together, not Joseph Smith. Even though we have one document, it's in the, it's in the Egyptian part of it. It's an alphabet in the handwriting of Joseph Smith, so we know he was involved. But yeah, I don't agree with it because it's just it does not explain the evidence that we have. Yeah, it, it becomes kind of a cop out to say that that Joseph has nothing to do with it. These guys are simply doing something under their own under their own power, but that doesn't seem to mesh very well with Joseph's use of scribes and the things that they are putting out on every other instance besides this. Exactly. Yes. That's right. 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 So the the other Theory in ways to easily reconcile this is the catalyst theory, which essentially says that, that the papyri has no relationship to the book of Abraham, that it's simply a vehicle to get Joseph thinking deeper about, uh, about scriptural things. And hence Joseph in an interaction with the Holy Ghost and under the gift and power of God essentially comes up with, with the, the book of Abraham as scripture being divinely given by God, but really having no relationship to the papyri directly. And they wrote here again, four points why this doesn't work. 
It says here the catalyst theory fails. Some apologists argue that the source of the book of Abraham is not the papyrus at all, but that the source is simply revelation from God and that the papyrus merely acted as a catalyst for Smith to receive the revelation. This theory fails for the following reasons. One, it contradicts Smith's own statements that the papyri was written in the handwriting of Abraham by his own hand and signed by the patriarch Abraham. And again, I think we talked about that earlier and that we just have to kind of deal with the fact that maybe Joseph thought that was the case, but the evidence leads us to say that that's not what's really happening. The the second one, it contradicts all the evidence stated above that Smith's source of the book of Abraham was the breathing permit of Hor. The third one, if true, the catalyst theory would mean that Smith's translations and restorations of the facsimiles were revelation from God, and thus we must conclude that God was directing Smith to incorrectly translate and restore the facsimiles. In other words, that God essentially deceived Joseph into thinking that he's working with the papyri simply as a, a means to produce the book of Abraham, and then that would cause us to question God as this all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, completely honest, divine being. And then the fourth one is, there are numerous anachronisms throughout the book of Abraham, including uh, Chaldea, Pharaoh, Egyptus. And if the catalyst theory is true, this would mean that God directed Smith to include anachronisms in the book of Abraham and to falsely attribute them to Abraham. And, and we touched on that earlier too, and, and perhaps gave kind of an explanation for that. So, in some ways, both of these reconciliation ideas fall short, and yet people like like you and and me and uh, you know Dan Witherspoon on Mormon Matters, um, apologists such as Carrie Molstein and John Gee and David Bakavoy, look at this issue and still find reasons to hold on. And to lead with faith. And some of us reconcile things in different ways. But I want to end the podcast just with your thoughts and ideas, how you reconcile how these these two theories kind of fall short, and yet you find a way to still lead with faith and, and maybe also speak for a moment of what you make of the book of Abraham as scripture. I think what where I come down on is from my own personal devotional point of view, okay? I'm not I'm taking off my academic hat now because I do recognize all of those issues and I acknowledge them. Uh, those are those are sticky issues there uh, with 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 both the, the missing papyrus theory and the catalyst theory. Neither one of them really does does uh, is able to explain all the evidence. And so the where I come down on it, I guess, is I'm still probing, still exploring you know what it means in terms of Joseph Smith being a prophet. Now I can look at look at Joseph Smith and say he's using his mind and he's using his his environment and God is inspiring him and giving him ideas and these kinds of things and he's trying to work with that. And and so to to look at the book of Abraham as an adaptation, maybe even an imperfect one of of these revelations, I don't really have a problem with that. And so so I can look at the book of Abraham and to me Whatever I derive from it in terms of giving me something in terms of, of life and learning and spirituality and these kinds of things, I, I can credit that to the book of Abraham. And because for me, scripture is what we as a community accept as scripture in some sense and what God himself has allowed to happen. Um, even though it's been imperfect human beings that have produced it all. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, and, absolutely. And so for me, when I read the book of Abraham in a, a devotional way, and it feeds me, feeds my spirit, uh, then I'm feeling like there's something good about it. And that's scripture to me, uh, just like what, what I can do with the Book of Mormon. And as you know, the Book of Mormon has its own issues. Uh, and and the Bible, and the Bible has its own issues. Uh, and so, but yet, is there anything coming through to feed our spirits, feed, you know, to, to allow us to grow and to learn something and to, to bring bring into our minds and into our hearts something that's that's good and that's to me what what scripture can do and and it's and it, yet it's even different than than reading a an inspirational novel or something like that uh it for me it's it's feeding my spirit in a different way than that is like you can re read Les Misérables or something like that and and Jean Valjean and all the good things that are going on there and his life after 
after it, you know, he gets out of prison and all. But, you know, to look at the stories of Abraham and to be able to connect them with other areas in the script, the other references in the scriptures, in the Bible and in the Doctrine and Covenants and to, to learn more about him, it, it, it transcends, I guess, all of these other issues for me. Um, and so I don't, I guess I just don't, I, I can't see a reason for throwing all of this out because we're not understanding, you know, exactly what happened. Right. No, and I, and I deeply value that point of view. I, I was just talking to somebody the other day, and maybe this is the same concept from, from a different perspective. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were asking about all the tough issues, and they were having a hard time. And I said, you ought to be grateful. I said, your agency is back on the table. And then I went on to explain. I said, when I first joined the church... Things seemed so simple. Everything kind of fit in its proper place. I was aware of some of the difficult issues because I had read No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. But my way of reconciling the things she was raising were with really simplistic answers. And everything just fit so beautifully that in some ways I didn't have my agency. I was, I, I was prone to follow very straightforwardly. I was very prone to, to be an absolute believer in the strongest sense of the word, because to me, the church was obviously true. It was just no doubt. And then there comes this point where about four or five years ago, my house of cards came down and I, I very much for maybe six months said, okay, this is not true. The church is not what it claims to be. And so I've got to figure out the, the softest, most comfortable way to just get out of this. And I tossed, uh, I, I lost sleep. I, I tossed that decision around for several months trying to figure out how I was going to handle it. And as I begin to kind of think deeper on all of these difficult issues and I begin to read up on Fowler and, and Perry and other ways of kind of seeing how we think and how those stages of thinking change and how our, our faith progresses from one point to another and begin to realize that where early on we, we all saw things in a very black and white way, it was either obviously true or obviously false. I was beginning to enter this realm where I no longer needed that certainty that I realized that things were going to be messy and there was going to be evidence on both sides. And the reason I share all that, I, I then shared all this with this person and I came back to them at the end of this conversation and said, but now I'm to a point where I see evidence on both sides. There are very good, very valid, very spiritual reasons to stay in the church. I've had answers to prayers. I've had experiences where I feel like God has told me this is where I need to be. And I also see other issues that are problems and they're valid. And and there's reasons to say, okay, this just doesn't fit. And thereby one conclusion is to say the church isn't true. And all of a sudden I feel like my agency is back on the table and I now have the freedom to choose. And I think what you're arguing for is that there is messiness and there are valid reasons to say this doesn't fit. And yet your, your life experience has told you that there's something bigger, something more divine going on here. And therefore it's not you ignoring the criticisms. I don't, I'm assuming I'll, I'll let you answer for yourself, but I don't assume you're just brushing them under the rug and saying, I'm going to put blinders on, but rather that your other experiences bring into culmination this idea that you're free to pick one way or the other and you've chosen to choose that path which has been spiritually beneficial to you. Very well said. Yeah, that that in a nutshell that's what it is for me. I I I if if a person comes to the point where they have to, where they encounter like you did a few years back and like I've had to do too, uh some of these messier issues, to me it if you look at it as an opportunity rather than just an obstacle, um, yes, you're going to be entering Alice in Wonderland stuff area there for a while. That, there's no question about it. Uh, things are going to go topsy-turvy for a while. But I love the way you said that, that your agency kicks in, and that's the beauty of it. If you are struggling with, with issues like this, it does place your agency forefront in your experience that you have the opportunity to choose. I say go through the experience. Don't go, don't go around it. Don't ignore it. Okay. This, these, if you go through it, you will learn. You will learn how to, to understand and develop an appreciation in a much bigger way about what's, what's going on. I believe spiritually in, in the church, 
uh, in your faith and in you know what what in, in your life of devotion, all of that. But it has to be a choice. I'm like you. When I first joined the church, it was just sort of all handed to me. Here's the package, and so I believed all that for many many years. And then when I saw that the package was sort of rumpled and torn up and, and uh, you know, there was an underbelly to it and all of this, then I started going, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, that creates an opportunity for you to, to actually go through the experience so that you can choose to have faith. And I like that. I like the idea that it makes, it make, it puts the onus on us at that point. Do I want to stay or do I want to go? And once you decide to stay, then that's your choice. Despite all this other stuff that's going on that you know about, it's your choice to stay. And if it's your choice to go, I'm, I'm like uh, President Uchtdorf, well, then maybe it is that for that person, maybe it is time to go for a while. Maybe they'll come back. I don't know. Maybe they won't. But they, it still, it brings them to the point of having to choose, doesn't it? It puts their, it puts their agency out front. Right, right. Everyone's journey is, is valid in that each of us have a right without any kind of uh, shame or, or being looked down upon, the, the right to choose that journey. And I, I love, as you're pointing out, Elder Uchtdorf, President Uchtdorf, in his uh, talk, Come Join With Us, he, he absolutely says, you know, some people struggle for years over whether to stay or to leave. And, and I guess my, my point was that when things were all beautiful, you didn't have any agency, right? You, you just knew the church was perfect. And so you kept coming. And when everything crashes, you don't have any agency either because everything just looks like everything points to the church is not true. It's, it's, as you're pointing out, it's that pressing through that and then getting to a place where you can see both sides that again, your agency is, is yours and you're, you're finally in the real sense of the word free to make up your own mind. Exactly. That's exactly the point. And so when people come with questions or they're coming with their faith crises or whatever, the worst thing to do is to try and fix them. That's the worst thing you can do. What you need to do is just to listen, see where they're at and acknowledge where you need to acknowledge, validate where you need to validate, uh, clear up where there needs to be clearing, clearing up perhaps, but not going through and just fixing it. Let that person go through it and then let them make up their own minds as what they want to do. Right, right. And when you do that, I think more often than we think, if we can help people just push through to the place where they can see both sides of all of these issues, I think more times than not, people will choose to stay. And, and I can, and I know, you know, from the way you're speaking about it, I can speak personally and I can talk of others who have gotten through this. It is so much more beautiful on this end of things than it was back in the beginning when things were simple. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, good, good. I'm uh, Brian Hoglid. I'm glad to have had you uh, on the podcast today. I so appreciate your perspective and your point of view. And, and I think, as you've pointed out, this will be validating to many who struggle over this issue. And yet we've kind of pointed them here at the end to – to, to realize that there's other ways to see things, that uh, that there are reasons to, to stay and to lead with faith, and that there's still something divine going on here in the church. And Brian, thanks again for being on. I'm very happy to be with you, Bill, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He 
to rescue me from danger, interposed His precious blood. From sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace! Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thy name. Now to carry me to realms of endless day Oh, to grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be Let thy goodness like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh. Take and seal it, seal it for thy course above.